0: One Christian author and speaker tells the story of a woman coming up to him after one of his talks at a conference with tears in her eyes and she explains to him that she has a son who is a practicing homosexual and with tears in her eyes and sobbing she says I just wish my son were normal like my other son. And this speaker begins to ask her some questions about her other son. And she comes to find out that her other son is living with his girlfriend And he's grieved by this conversation because here in this woman's skewed kind of thinking, she was giving allowance and acceptance for one form of sexual immorality, but not another form of sexual immorality. And that is a danger as we approach a text like this this morning is that we would give a pass to all of our own sexual immoralities or the immoralities of others around us, and then single out one in particular. But if you've been studying the book of Leviticus with us, you understand that God doesn't do that. In fact, this verse, the single verse that I read in Leviticus chapter 18, which gives a very clear, unmistakable prohibition against homosexuality, is, the, is in the context of prohibitions against incest, against adultery, against bestiality and so God is against all sexual activity outside the confines of a relationship between a man and a woman in the marriage covenant and that's where we need to stand because that's where the scriptures unmistakably stands that's where God stands And so this morning, as we think about this important topic, I want us to take away three truths about homosexuality. The first truth is the clear prohibition of God towards homosexuality. We we read it. I'll read it again. In 1822, it says, You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. This verse, as we have seen in the series, is in the context of a multitude of sexual prohibitions, and they're specifically directed towards the man. And we we saw that in all the ancestral prohibitions, you know, that, that it's directed towards the man. And so here it says, you shall not lie with a male, with another man, as one lies with a female. In a very real sense, you, you couldn't get more clear with the language as to what's going on here. In a very veiled kind of way, but a clear kind of way, without being graphic, God forbids sexual relations between same-sex persons. And specifically towards the male here. Now there is one passage in Romans chapter 1 that addresses female same-sex relationships. But but it, it's very clear here. And the common objection that comes up in this context was, well, is, well, Matt, we're talking about the book of Leviticus, aren't we? I mean, there's all kinds of strange laws and prohibitions in the book of Leviticus that we don't adhere to today. And one would be correct in that. In fact, within this Same context, there is a prohibition against lying with a woman in the midst of her her menstrual cycle. If we look at uh, verse 19 of this chapter, of chapter 18, also you shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness during her menstrual impurity. And... We, we see, if we were to turn over to chapter 20, that too was a capital crime. But we also need to be careful because, I mean, do we say the same thing about incest? Well, you know, it's just the book of Leviticus. Or do we say the same thing about bestiality? Well, it's just the book of Leviticus. Or how about this one? Sacrificing your children to a pagan god. Well, it's just the book of Leviticus, so we need to think through these matters in a clear and cogent kind of way. Well, as you're going through the book of Leviticus, as I alluded to last week, there, there are clearly some commands that were unique for that old covenant, but then there are some principles of morality that transcend all covenants in the Bible that transcend both new covenant, old covenant believers, but also even before the law was given in Exodus chapter 20. And I think, as I alluded to last time, this command in Leviticus 18 related to women and their menstrual cycle, we we see it actually come up in chapter 15. If you look at chapter 15, In verse 19, it says, When a woman has a discharge, if her her discharge in her body is blood, she shall continue in her menstrual impurity for seven days, and whoever touches her shall be unclean until evening. Everything on which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean, and everything on which she sits shall be unclean. And if we were to read this entire chapter we would see this theme of coming into contact with blood was what made one unclean and unable to approach God in the tabernacle because God is the God of life. And it was the same thing as well when it came to the different animals. If You you couldn't eat certain scavenger animals that ate blood um, because that would be considered unclean. But when... Christ came, He Himself was the tabernacle. He was the fulfillment of that. And so there is no tabernacle today. There is no temple today. Christ is the temple. Christ is the tabernacle. So all of those prohibitions related to clean and unclean have been fulfilled in Christ. But other principles of morality have not. And we know that because... The writers, the authors of the New Testament repeat many of the things that we find here in the book of Leviticus in fact one of the most quoted verses in the New Testament is found in the book of Leviticus you've probably heard it before it says love your neighbor as yourself do we want to do away with that one as well no so we need to think through this clearly and so so I would contend that this prohibition is an abiding principle, uh, firstly, because the Apostle Paul alludes to Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22. He alludes to it when he gives prohibitions against homosexuality. If, if you have your copy of Scripture, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, where the Apostle Paul writes, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, and then here's this word, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. That word, there's two words here, effeminate and homosexual, which which almost certainly encapsulate all homosexual activity here. But if you zero in on what is translated homosexual here, this is the Greek word arsenokoitai. Or Koita, which probably doesn't mean a whole lot to many in this room. But if you were to read the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament in Leviticus eighteen twenty-two, which, by the way, was essentially the Bible of the apostles. The apostles primarily quote from uh, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. They don't quote the Hebrew when they're writing to Greek audiences they quote the Greek translation a couple hundred years before the time of Christ you understand the Old Testament was written in Hebrew into Aramaic several hundred years before the time of Christ uh, in Alexandria they translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek and you can look at you know manuscripts of that Septuagint as it's often called uh, today, well, Paul uses two. Wo- Paul actually coins a word here, this "arsenokoito" in First Corinthians six nine. He also uses it, by the way, in 1 Timothy chapter one. It's it's a word that is not, as far as we can tell, Paul coins it because it's not used anywhere else in the Bible. It's not used anywhere else in all of Greek language that we have. And it, it's, it's basically a translation, or I'm sorry, a grabbing two words from Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 22, which is man and man betting, lying with another man. In other words, the Apostle Paul here is quoting from Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, when he coins this word that is translated homosexual. Now again, this is very important because this means that Paul believed that to be true. That prohibition that existed in Leviticus 18 to be binding for new covenant Christians today. Again, I mentioned 1 Timothy chapter 1. I'll just read it for you. It's the same word as But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for unholy, uh, uh, for those who kill fathers or mothers, for murderers, for sexually immoral persons, for homosexuals, there's the word there, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. So the Apostle Paul alludes to Leviticus 18. But also I would say we shouldn't be quick to dismiss what Leviticus teaches us or what any of the Old Testament teaches us. I mean, after all, the New Testament authors, that was their Bible, right? The the Old Testament Scriptures was the Bible of Jesus. The New Testament hadn't been written during the life of Jesus. And, and the apostles themselves say things like 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Now while it is true as we read other passages like, uh, like the book of Hebrews that we are not old covenant believers. We don't live under that system, but nonetheless there are abiding principles that the impulse should not be to quickly discard that because, well, that was for the Old Testament. Third, as we have observed here in Leviticus 18, conscience was sufficient to make one Damnable because of these sins in Leviticus 18. What do I mean by that? Well, remember, as we, our first message in Leviticus 18, if you read verse 24, it says, So do not defile yourselves by any of these things, for by all these, what's the these? Everything he's just mentioned incest, homosexuality, Adultery, child sacrifice, bestiality, all of these things, the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled so that the land has become defiled and I brought its punishment upon it and the land has vomited out its inhabitants. In other words, God was holding these Gentile nations the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Amorites, the Moabites, all of them that were inhabiting the land that he was going to vomit out and put his people in the land. All of that was judgment upon those peoples because of these things. Now, none of the Parasites. there was no Hittite Bible studies taking place. There was no Parasite outreach going on. And yet each of these were image bearers created in the image of Almighty God so that they knew in their heart of hearts this is wrong. But I'm going to do it anyways. And because of that, God was going to bring His hammer of judgment through the conquest. When you read the book of Joshua and it's brutal and it's bloody and it's a war book. All of that was judgment upon these peoples for all of this kind of stuff. And so the creation order demonstrates this. Fourth, and this touches on a question I mentioned last week that's a good principle. When you're coming to any of these things that we see in the Old Testament or in the law, Is it repeated in the New Testament, which we say yes. But also, another question, is it something that is is seen as forbidden even before the giving of the law? And we see that as well. In the book of Genesis, as Moses records the kind of pre-law period before God's dealings with Israel, it's very clear that this sin of homosexuality was regarded as sin. It was regarded as rebellion. If you turn back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, 28, it says that God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that creeps on the earth. And so here we see from Genesis 1, on day 6, when God creates humanity, He creates Adam and Eve, He creates them male and female. And He gives them this imperative to be fruitful and multiply You don't have to be a biological genius to know that being fruitful and multiplying requires a male and a female. Women and women cannot have children. Men and men cannot have children unless they get assistance from another man or another woman. It's impossible. We see the same in Genesis 2:18 and following. Remember, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable as 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 God expands upon day 6 in chapter 2. He looks at man in the garden, he sees him and he says it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable to him corresponding to him, and this this word here, corresponding or suitable, is the idea is is one who is like Adam, but not exactly like Adam. And that's what you have with the creation of Eve out of his side, is one who's like Adam, more similar than the animal world, which was not considered good, but not exactly like Adam. Adam. And so, I think in a very real sense, if all we had was Genesis 1 and 2, if that's all, and and God never said, and there was no mention of homosexuality in all of the rest of Genesis to Revelation, I would say we could still conclude, based off of Genesis 1, it ain't right. But. There's an abundance. And, and, and by the way, I'm going through all this because we need to be clear on this because more and more you will see and as you have seen over the years so much of the evangelical world is capitulating on this. We need to have both courage and compassion courage to believe what God has said. And and so because of that, we have to be clear on it. It has to be unmistakable. So, turn to Genesis chapter 9. This is a passage you may not have thought about in this regard. And this is not one that I would die on, but I I think there's enough evidence here. Genesis chapter 9, you remember the flood narrative God delivers Noah and his three sons and their wives and his wife and he gets off of the boat and he starts gardening much like Adam. In verse 20, Then Noah began to be a man of the land and planted a vineyard and he drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Then Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two pro- brothers outside. But Shem Ham, Shem, and Japheth took the garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces torn, turned backward so that they did not see their father's nakedness. Then Noah awoke from his wine and he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants. He shall be to his brothers. And he said, Blessed be Yahweh, God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, Let him dwell in the tents of Shem. Let Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived 350 years after the flood. So all the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. We say, Matt, why are you reading that passage? Well, I actually never thought about this passage possibly alluding to homosexuality until... I was studying Leviticus. Now, did you remember last week when we were studying Leviticus, all that language of incestuous relationships was what was the euphemism for sex? Uncovering nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. You shall not uncover the nakedness. To do that is to uncover the nakedness of the man in that relationship. This language of uncovering of nakedness. Well, Moses, the same author of Leviticus, is the same author of Genesis. And I, and, and, and you know, it's one of those things, you're reading through the scriptures over the years and you're thinking, man, that seems like a harsh punishment for him, right? I mean, his whole line is cursed because he Because he saw his dad, right? But it's more than he just saw his dad. In fact, it seems to me Noah says it's more than just him seeing because if you look at chapter 9 when he he says in verse 24 Noah woke from... His wine, and he knew what his youngest son—it doesn't say what he had saw, but what he had done to him. So there's the language of uncovering. There's the language of what his youngest son had done, and there's also parallels as well between what we will see later on in the book of, or not in, in Genesis 19, with Sodom and Gomorrah and his the daughters of Lot getting their father drunk and having relations. We say, well, I need to take a shower right now, okay? And I don't blame you, okay? But I I think what we have here, a very early allusion to homosexuality in the book of Genesis that's condemned way before Moses even wrote Leviticus chapter 18. But Moses receiving revelation from God about things that happened way before he was ever even born highlights this reality that this was something that was condemned early on. And then of course that famous passage in Genesis chapter 19 which I just alluded to in Genesis chapter 19 Remember Lot and his family settled down in those cities on the plain. It says, Then two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And Lot saw them and rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. And he said, Now behold my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, However, no, but we shall spend the night in the square. Yet he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house and he made a feast for them and baked unleavened bread and they ate. So there's this, this kind of ominous scene as as there's these strangers in the square who, who we know to be angels and, and Lot sees them and he says, no, 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 you don't want to you don't want to hang out there at nighttime. Not in this neighborhood. You need to stay with me. Verse 4 Before they lay down the men of the city the men of Sodom, Sodom surrounding the house from young to old all people from every quarter and they called to Lot and said to him where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may know them. So all the people in the city of Sodom, all the men come out and they want to have relations with these men. Now, it says that we may know them. Now, I think it's safe to say that doesn't mean they want to sit down and have a cup of coffee with them. That this knowing is the same knowing that Moses speaks of in Genesis chapter 4 when it says Adam knew his wife. And she became pregnant. It's that kind of knowing. It's the relation. Again, the scripture often uses euphemism for sexual relations. And so these men of the city want to have relations with what they perceive to be men, who we know are angels. Verse 6 Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him. And he said, Please, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please, let me bring them out to you, and do to them whatever is good in your eyes. Only do nothing to these men, inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. So Lot throws his two daughters under the bus, and again, you just think, what on earth? What is this? Is like bizarro world here. You know, he, he's he's protecting these men, but he's throwing his daughters out to the wolves. Verse nine, they said, "Step aside." Moreover, they said. This one came to sojourn and already he is persistently acting like a judge. Now we will treat you more wickedly than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and stepped up to break the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness from small to great and so, that they were, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. Then the two men said to Lot, Whom else have you here? A son-in-law and your, da- and your sons and your daughters and everyone you have in, this, in the city. Bring them out to the place For we are about to destroy this place because their outcry has become great before Yahweh. So Yahweh has sent us to destroy it. And so what we see here in this passage, clearly this city that is immersed in sexual immorality and specifically homosexuality as evidenced by their desire to gang rape these visitors and all this is evidence for why God is going to wipe them off of the map. And so this is before Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22. This is highlighting that this, and again, this is, you know, I mean, I I, I said to this in somewhat mocking fashion, but you know, we have people today who, who, you know, argue, well, we need to be on the right side of history on this issue. I mean, this stuff is as old as Genesis. This is not anything to celebrate. This is not anything to waffle on. This has always been considered by God as bad, not a good thing, as something, as the text says in Leviticus, an abomination. And it's not helpful to anybody to capitulate. It's certainly not helpful to the person who's immersed in the sin. Who will tell them? Who will have the courage to tell them that this is not right? Who have the courage to tell them that while wow, this is sin and rebellion against Almighty God there is a Savior who is a friend of sinners and He will forgive all of your sins if you but come to Him humbly and repentant. And we must be courageous because quite frankly believing the doctrine of justification by faith alone will not get you cancelled in this culture. But believing this stuff will. You will not get your Twitter account deleted over believing in the deity and humanity of Christ. Although that is much even more important than this. But this is where the battle lines are drawn and quite frankly we didn't draw them. But also the testimony of the New Testament. I already mentioned 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, as the Apostle Paul is setting up the gospel and the need for justification by faith alone. He, in those first three chapters of Romans, he's indicting those who are without the law, the Gentile pagan world, In chapter 1 and then chapter 2 he's indicting those with the law, namely the Jewish people. Both of them guilty before God. But in Romans chapter 1 and verse 24 when he highlights God and his revelation in creation. He speaks of the Gentile world refusing the knowledge of God. That which is known about God is evident, but they refuse that knowledge And in verse 24, therefore God gave them over to the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way, also men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their heir. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. And we can go on. When the Apostle Paul is highlighting God's indictment against the Gentile world... And in a very real sense, his judgment of the Gentile world, he's giving them over to these degrading passions which are evidenced in women with women and men with men. And all of this highlights the gospel. This is why we ought not to be ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. This is why Jesus came. But if we go the way of the culture and don't acknowledge this as a sin, then there's no need for the Savior. In fact, there is a branch, there are some professing evangelicals who will use terms like gay Christianity. You may have heard of a conference, that an annual conference that was recently held called the Revoice Conference, in which you basically you have groups of professing Christians who want to highlight that a somebody can be a Christian, live a celibate life and be a gay Christian who has these homosexual desires. But doesn't act upon them, but but they need to embrace that identity as a gay Christian. I, I mean it's hard to imagine anything that could be more hurtful and difficult for a Christian who struggles with that than to say, just embrace your identity. And, and, then, and with this, and you can see how that kind of critical theory and wokeness comes all into it, because you are an oppressed people group. This is your identity. But it's not helpful. I mean, for Christians out there who struggle with same-sex attraction, just like any other sin, I mean, for me to say, well, you know, I, I am a thieving Christian. Us Christian thieves, we're an oppressed people group. You know, I, or, or how about, no, how about this? Let's go to Leviticus 18, Right? I, I'm a bestial Christian. I mean, that's not helpful. And, and again, this often, you can kind of see how, yeah, this is not helping anybody. Now it's not to say that a genuine believer in the Lord Jesus Christ will not continue to struggle with sexual sinful desires. They need to be crucified just like any heterosexual sinful desires. They need to be replaced with a love for Christ. Well that's the prohibition. The prohibition of God against homosexuality that was point one, so hopefully hope you packed your lunch this morning. No, the next two will be quick. The perspective of God toward homosexuality back to Leviticus eighteen, in case you got lost. Leviticus eighteen twenty two, and you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female, it is an abomination. It is an abomination. The Hebrew word toavah, it's used 43 times in the book of Ezekiel, 68 times in the rest of the Old Testament. It is almost always used for some grievous sin that is detestable before God. Now there is another word that's translated abomination and sometimes that comes up in the context of some of the unclean laws but not this word. This word is specifically and consistently used for those sins that are grievous and detestable to Almighty God. In other words, God's perspective on this, this is bad. This is not good. This is not something to be celebrated. This is something that He detests. This is thumbing your nose up at God the Almighty. It comes up often in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 6, 16-19 these six things the lord hates yes seven are an abomination and there's that hebrew parallelism where you can see that to abominate something is to hate it is to detest it these six things the lord hates seven that are an abomination of, a proud look a lying tongue hands that shed innocent blood a heart that devises wicked plans Feet that are swift to running into evil. A false witness who speaks lies. And one who sows discord among brethren. God hates lies. God hates deception. God hates pride. These things are detestable. And here, Leviticus 18, God hates, he abominates homosexuality. Now, there are certain things that we may hate, and they're they're more in the realm of preference. You know, you may hate it when somebody chews their gum real loudly. You may hate it when somebody eats cottage cheese with their mouth open. <laughs> You may hate it when somebody doesn't flush the toilet behind them. But there's a whole different category when we're dealing with the realm of morality. When you say something like, I hate the abuse of children. Now we've moved from preference to something that's a matter of right and wrong. When you say I hate gang violence I hate sexual abuse I hate abortion Now we're in the the realm of right and wrong we're in the realm of morality and this is what this is what God's saying here This is wrong this is contrary to my will this is contrary to my character this is contrary to the way in which I designed humanity this is taking again as we've said in previous weeks God's good kind gift of sex that he's given to be enjoyed between husband and wife in the context of marriage and it it is a punting of this it is a kicking it around it is a perversion and twisting of it And so, my friends, God abominates. This is his posture towards us. It's not, it's not fuzzy. It's not unclear. And, and those who try to make it unclear are simply twisting what God has said in his word. And, and this cultural pressure around us It does affect the way we think. Sometimes it comes in the context of having family members who come out of the closet or loved ones. And and, and often you'll hear people say, you know, well, that was my stance until my son dot, dot, dot. Our human experience and part of it is is because we you know we we think you know somebody 's going to be having horns come out of their head when they 're practicing hocide no no we we can have friends, people can be in many ways decent people, but again this this activity God abominates and the the kind of the softening of the edges on this often comes in the context when Preachers, pastors sometimes say things to to try to soften the issue or caveat the issue. You know, I have, I have many friends who are homosexuals. I mean, would we say that about these other things in the book of Leviticus? I have many friends who mate with animals. I have many friends who, you know, marry their cousins and have relations with their mother. No, no, we wouldn't say that. It just kind of evidences that that we're now thinking of this, we're now normalizing this. Now, don't misunderstand me. You should have friends. I hope that you have friends who are homosexuals. Jesus was a friend of sinners. But, But that should not change our understanding of what God says about this and His posture towards it. But also thirdly, not only the prohibition, the posture of God, the punishment of God. Leviticus 20.13 It says, if there is a man who lies with A male, as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. And then it says, their blood guiltiness. And we saw that word in chapter 17 of Leviticus. This is one being guilty of murder. Their blood guiltiness be on them. This was a capital crime. Just like adultery was. Just like incest was. If you go through chapter 20. Just like sacrificing your seed, your children to Moloch was. It was a capital crime. It was the death penalty. This was God's retribution. Which again coincides with the reality that He abominates it. And again I remember some years ago. Somebody saying that uh, because evidently there's still anti sodomy laws in some countries african countries especially that that christians should write letters to appeal to these countries to change their laws now I'm not necessarily advocating that, that you know, all political policy should be adopted after the book of Leviticus. But I'm thinking, like first of all, what right do we have as Americans to tell other countries what their law should be? But secondly, if it's wrong in Uganda, then it would be wrong in Leviticus chapter 18. And I'm not willing to say that. I mean, after all, it would be quite a deterrent. I mean, if we had law, if, if, if adultery was a capital crime, do you think adultery rates would decrease? You'd think twice. But again, somebody may think, well, you know, that's the God of the Old Testament. Well, I already read to you First Corinthians 6 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That he says neither the effeminate nor homosexuals will inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, when we come to the New Testament, unrepentant homosexuality means damnation. So there's not any softening of it. It goes from temporal punishment to... Eternal punishment. And again, this is to drive us to courage, to be clear on this, because, as I think as Joe Rigney says, clarity is charity, it's loving to be clear on this, but also to have compassion to have compassion to some. And no doubt in a room this size, there are people here, there are even believers who may struggle with same-sex attractions. And you need to deal with that sin in the same way you deal with any other sin. The regular application of the means of God's grace, both the public means and the private means that God gives us, to grow into the likeness of Jesus. Even as we were studying this morning uh, in, in the Sunday school hour. Just like it is with addictions. It's not some special category of sin. For, for those you know, who wear white coats and those who are the experts in the field. No, this is a sin that is redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And you need to apply the means that God gives to grow and change in these areas. And also, just like any other sin, recruiting some accountability to help you grow in this area, to change, can go a long way. Somebody may may argue, well, Matt, if you you keep uh, messages like these, people struggling with same-sex attraction, they're going to take their own life. And there, there is truth to the reality that numbers of suicide amongst homosexuals are, are larger than the rest of the population. But there's no actual evidence that this is because of Christian belief or the beliefs of any religion. But Christianity is not the only one that speaks of this as wrong as sin. Uh, but, But I would just reverse it. I mean... Matthew chapter 18 says that in verse 6... Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned into the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes." The voices in this world who say this is okay, celebrate it, rejoice in it, don't listen to anybody who says it's wrong are doing nothing more than causing little ones to stumble. To try to draw others into damnation. And I say woe unto them. Woe unto them who aren't clear on this matter or who twist and pervert this matter because they lead others to hell and so if we're going to have compassion we need to just like any other heterosexual sin be clear on this and be consistent and to apply the balm of Gilead to apply the hope of the gospel that this Jesus is a friend of sinners. While He abominates sin, He welcomes sinners to come to Him. Any sin, any and all sinners can come to Him. In fact, we just read this morning uh, in in Luke chapter 7, this whom Luke describes as a sinful woman coming to Jesus. Which almost certainly in the language of of Luke was a woman of ill repute. In the words of, of our sitting vice president, a working woman. But she had heard of Jesus. She had heard that he forgives sinners. And she had all this money saved up that was invested in this bottle of perfume. And she, with tears in her eyes, sobbing, bends down and is wiping Jesus' feet and she breaks the bottle of this perfume over Jesus' feet. And of course, the Pharisees, the self-righteous, are looking on. If this Jesus was a prophet, he would know what kind of woman she is. But Jesus then tells a parable to Simon the Pharisee. Two men were both indebted. One owed 500 denarii, another 5,000. Both of them, their money, letters, money lenders forgave them of the debt. Which one do you think loved more? Oh, Simon the Pharisee said, well, I guess the one who had a greater debt, who was forgiven more. And then he said, she loves much because what? She was forgiven much. see, the Pharisees didn't even see their sin. They didn't even know the greatness of forgiveness that was offered in Christ. But this woman, immersed in all of her sexual sin, found forgiveness. And any sinner who goes to Jesus with humility... And repentance and laying hold of the promise of the gospel finds forgiveness and newness of life. And so I summon all hetero and homosexual sinners to go to Jesus. Let's pray.